Welcome to Tuesdays with Andrea. It's the inspiration station for everyday people guiding humanity forward. I'm your host, Andrea Rios McMillan, and every week I pursue conversations that matter with people who can relate to the common struggles we all face. You'll get to know the person behind the profession and find commonality with people of all ages, cultures, and backgrounds. Listen as friends, neighbors, and coworkers offer meaningful, personal explorations of modern life and the values we hold dear, all for the purpose of strengthening and uplifting others. Welcome everyone to Tuesdays with Andrea podcast. I'm excited to introduce our next guest. We're going to be speaking today with Emily Galvin Almanza. She's founder and co-executive director of Partners for Justice and has been a public defender in California and New York, working to protect people facing charges and people returning home from incarceration. Emily is a graduate of Harvard University and Stanford Law School, and she earned the Deborah Road Prize for her work in the public interest. She was one of the first attorneys bringing post-reform petitions for relief on behalf of individuals sentenced to life under California's Three Strikes Law, and that was with the Stanford Three Strikes Project. And now you're bringing a new model of service to communities across the country. So this is, sounds amazing, Emily. And I found you on Twitter. <laughs> Where I frequently am found. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for joining the show. I, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about the work that you do and under, understand more um, why you're passionate about this work and what your goals and objectives are um, in ways that we can understand as the general public why what you're doing is important. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk about it. It's like my passion and uh, I'm just grateful to share more about our work. So tell me about the Partners for Justice organization. How did that start? You're the you're founder of it. How did that how did this come about? So I was working as a public defender in the Bronx. Um, as you can probably tell from my bio, I had been getting people out of cages in various ways for many, many years. And I actually moved from California to the Bronx to try and do this thing called holistic defense with Robin Steinberg at the Bronx Defenders. It was a really cool way to practice because as a criminal defense lawyer, I was often dealing with folks who had needs that were not criminal defense needs, right? Like getting evicted, having a child taken away, losing one's benefits because they're in jail for a couple of weeks, um, losing property because police seized it for civil forfeiture. And as someone, I, I see the role of a defender as being really, really expansive, right? If I am your lawyer, I want to protect you against everything, any form of the government trying to take something from you. I want to protect you from that. Mm -hmm. But I don't have the expertise to be every kind of lawyer known to man. Right. So, Working in a space where immigration lawyers and family defenders and criminal defenders and civil attorneys can, can all collaborate and work together lets us all say yes to people when they ask for help, even if what they're asking for is outside our own area. And I thought, you know, that's, that's that, that way of practicing is worth moving across the country for. And that's what you um, mean by the holistic practice? Yeah. So, so, so combining those sub, subsets of the, of, of the field? Yeah, it's a way of um, representing people that involves multidisciplinary collaboration, a deep connection to the community so that everybody on the team has a close relationship with the community they serve and understands the community's needs and priorities mm -hmm. and gives everybody we work for this feeling of seamless access to services. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, this is a great model, but the Bronx Defenders is like the Cadillac model, right? It's like, it's, it's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'd come from offices in California that are state, that are county agencies, and they're never going to be able to afford, you know, that deluxe level of service, or at least it's going to take a long time to get there. Mm -hmm. so I was thinking, you know, we got to be able to, to find a way to create that seamless access to services and that cool collaborative way of getting better results for everybody we work for mm -hmm. without the cost of putting every type of attorney under one roof. And then I was thinking, you know, the catalyst player here is the non-attorney advocate. It's not any one of us lawyers. It's actually the person who's just a smart, patient, competent, tenacious person who's side by side with the client, you know, dealing with all of these outside professionals, coordinating the whole team, making it all work and holding the client's hand through it all. And I thought that would be, be a really great job for anybody mm -hmm. right out of college. So I'm actually like, I'm really good at helping humans. I'm not, I don't know anything about starting organizations. Uh -huh. So luckily my, my really good friend from back in, in first grade uh, was at that time a management consultant at the Boston Consulting Group. She was specializing in nonprofit management. 
So I oh, went to her and I was like, how, do I, how, do, how does a person do? What do I do? do? What do yeah, what is this? It's like creating a thing. <laughs> Just and she was it. like, I'm in. So we co-founded it. We, uh, her name is Rebecca Solo. And we founded Partners for Justice together in 2017. What did she say when you first told her? Uh, obviously, with her <laughs> background experience, she's probably more prepared. Okay, here are the, the steps and here's what we should do. But as a friend, was she like, are you sure you want to do this? Is it was it a no, high risk for you? No, that's not her. No, I'm I'm the nervous Nelly. I'm the nervous Nelly okay. who's like, oh God, can I start? Like, can I, like I'd always been like a really good employee. Like I'm really good at doing what I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This idea of like I could be starting a whole new thing was terrifying to me. But Rebecca, you know, we I, I tricked her. I asked her and her husband out to brunch. Uh, <laughs> my, oh, me and my husband <laughs> went out a little do a double. Were mimosas lunch. involved? <laughs> they were involved. They were definitely involved. But the cool thing about her is she she heard me out. You know, she was specializing in uh, global health at the time. And most people, I, I sort of wrongly assume that everybody knows how toxic our criminal system is. But actually, most people don't know the depth of the toxicity and how, like, in every possible way, it harms people. And is very counterproductive when you think about public safety. And so as I kind of broke down for her all the things that were not working mm-hmm. and all the ways in which creating this catalyst player, creating a job for young people where their participation could single-handedly create a form of interdisciplinary collaboration that would get better results for ordinary people. Mm. She was very into it. She didn't hesitate for a minute. She was like, we can do this. I'm in. I think her words were, I'm in. Mm -hmm. I'm all in because it sounds like it makes so much sense. Why haven't we been doing this before? Yeah, that's the thing that's kind of surprised me. I fully expected when we did our sort of like research on what's out there, I totally expected this to exist somewhere because it's it's such a good fit. Like when you're fresh out of college, you want a job that's going to give you great responsibility, great experience, great training and a way to make a real difference, a very concrete difference in the lives of like actual humans who you will meet mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Real people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if you're a person who's dealing with the criminal system, most of what you want is having someone listen to you, mm-hmm. actually follow your priorities, your directions, work for you, and get you access to every form of help that you actually need. So the need is there. You know, Public defenders are really excited to be able to expand their services and do more Community members are excited to have someone whose whole job is to to listen and fight for them in a way that maybe sometimes is a little bit more expansive than a public defender's bandwidth. Mm-hmm. So it's been kind of a rip roaring success. And how has it been so far? The last two two and a half years since you guys have been up and, and running, it's been amazing. It's been um, so we the first year was mostly trying to build support for it, which you know when you go out there trying to pitch a new program to, to donors, to foundations. They're sort of looking for analogous things they've seen before. And when you're going out there being like, well, I have this totally new idea that nobody's done before, but I swear it'll work. I totally know it will work. Right. <laughs> you know, you get a lot of people say like, yeah, I'd like to see a proof of concept before mm-hmm. I give you a ton of money. So I was pregnant with my daughter. <laughs> I was hiding the baby, baby bump and like asking people to give me lots of money and I can't believe it worked. <laughs> but then we launched in, uh, in 2018 with our first class of 10 advocates. We started in California and Delaware, two sites mm-hmm. to prove that this can work anywhere. And within six months, the program was such a success that both chief defenders we were working with said they wanted to make it a permanent part of their office. We, we did a little survey of our work and found that we were dramatically successful at getting people out of jail, even on fairly robust charges, things where people would often suffer and sit in a cage for a long period of time. We were very good at communicating the information about that person's background and character and you know their their future plans in a way that helped judges and prosecutors see our clients as human and give right. them opportunities because so many uh, times they're not seen as human i think thinking about privilege in the system is really the best starting place because when you look at the way you know a white man of means moves through the justice system Mm-hmm. the justice system. <laughs> right. Um, it's very, very different from the way that every single one of my clients was treated and dehumanized. And, you know, even the language, the way in the Bronx in arraignments, when they bring a person before the judge to see the judge for the first time to make the decision about whether they will go home to their family or be held in a cage, you know, the people working in that room refer to them as the body. We're bringing the bodies up. I mean, the, the defendant, the offender, the inmate, 
you did this uh, Twitter post that talked about the subtle way the system dehumanizes inmates. And that goes not just from a judicial system and the, and the way that they're able to easily, more easily prosecute mm-hmm. the individual, but then also the people who have to uh, retain that construct. And, you know, that goes for the jail guards and the secretaries and everyone who works within that system. It kind of goes to support um, them being able to sleep better. And the only way to do that is to give you a number and not call you by your name and put you in orange. And I loved the way that you pointed out in, in that article. Would you be able to share a little bit of, of those tactics and ways that you've seen as a public defender when you talked about the toxic justice system and how it's really not a justice system? Mm-mm the ways that you've seen that will help shed light on other people on why you have that viewpoint? So it's in, it's, it's like built into every fiber of the system that we've made. It's dehumanizing at every level because the things we do to people don't make sense. Mm-hmm. They're not good for public safety. So when you, let's, let's, let's think for a minute, let's just cordon this off and think about violence. Okay. It causes violence when people are isolated, when they are traumatized, when they have a substance use disorder or are struggling with some kind of behavioral health condition. The things we do to people when we put them in prison, trauma, more violence, isolation, are the things that cause violence and cause Mm -hmm. behavioral problems in people. Like everything we do in the system by taking people's power away, separating them from their communities, making phone calls cost $8 a minute or more, giving them no meaningful work, no education, torturing them with boredom, no means to sort of feel that they have the kind of agency in their own life mm-hmm. that is beneficial to recovering from the trauma that of just being there in the first place. Like everything we do to people in prisons and jails is bad for public safety. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really dumb because over 95% of people who we put in cages are coming home. Everybody's yeah. like, they're going to get out. People. Yeah. They're <laughs> going to get out. out. Yeah. So if we wanted, if we actually wanted to make communities safer, mm-hmm. we would, first of all, be massively transitioning away from policing and embracing like non-police emergency first responders because the vast majority of what police do is like responding to behavioral health crises and like trespassing and like right. low level stuff. We would not put people in cages because that doesn't make anybody better. I think a lot about how the, what we do to people we do because of an emotional desire for some kind of vengeance or retribution Mm, or out of a fear reaction. Like none of it is rational. And that trickles down to the way you see system actors work. So if you're a public defender, you go into a room, you're at arraignments, you meet a young mother. She had a baby two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. She just got arrested on, you know, perhaps like I've seen um, a lot of wrongful arrests in the Bronx, but it could also be something, you know, really, really minor, like a shoplifting or Mm -hmm. being in, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time when there was a drug bust, or maybe she does have some sort of substance use issue. You've got a young mother sitting in a cage sobbing because she's not with her baby. Mm -hmm. That's a really painful room to be in, right? Mm -hmm. And when your job is to tell her story, when she's not allowed to talk, she's silenced by the system. Mm -hmm. And so somebody else has to tell her story. And even if she were not silenced, she's emotional and scared. Totally. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, like, What's (laughs) What's <laughs> I could go on about this for way too long, but the system terrifies people and then uses all this like automatic language that's really hard to understand. Mm-hmm. Like there's all these people saying things like, you know, Bronx Defenders by Emily Galvin for the defense wave the reading but not the rights they're under. And if you're an ordinary person, you're like, yeah, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> so you've got people who are terrified who have, who have so much pain by virtue of even being there. Right, something really bad has happened, and they have been taken away from their life and put in a cage. And now a stranger is coming into the room saying, tell me your story so that I can figure out like what details I can use to get you out of here. Right. And then as a defender, it's your job to go up and not just list the facts that should send your client home, but if you're doing your job right, you should be feeling the full emotional weight of what you are saying. You are begging for a child to go home to their mother. You're begging for a mother to go home to their child. You're begging for, you know, a man who's been taken away from his job, his family and might lose his apartment to have a shot to fight this case and and preserve his whole life. And when you watch judges and prosecutors who traditionally, and things are beginning to shift, but traditionally it's a system very tilted toward the prosecution. Mm -hmm. They have to fight to keep this human being in a cage. Mm -hmm. So of course they use dehumanizing language. And of course they do everything they can to not see this human as a human. 
mm-hmm. because it, it erodes their soul otherwise. Right. Otherwise they, they wouldn't be able to sleep at night or go home to their families. And, and maybe they shouldn't. Mm. Ooh, like- <laughs> Emily. Ooh. <laughs> so what's the answer here? Right. It's awful. It's not right. People are hurting on all sides. And there's a, 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 a very specific, it seems, motive and interest in the people in power to continue it. And why stop it, especially if it's a for-profit system and there's all of these other ways that um, others who are benefiting are benefited. So what's a long-term solution? It's really hard because if we were going to do something that truly embraces like transformation and public safety, right? If we were going to say, absolutely, there are people who cause harm in their community, like that we're not pretending that that transgression does not exist and violence doesn't exist. Like there are totally people out there who have caused harm. Yeah. But there are different ways of addressing that that are less familiar to us. They're less comfortable because they're less familiar. Mm -hmm. They work a lot better. So like, for example, alternative first responders are in many cases safer than police officers who have guns and are militarized and prone to harm, especially black and brown men. I mean, right. A black man in this country has a greater chance of being killed by police than of catching a fly ball at a baseball game. Yeah, yeah. Um, if we wanted to do a better job of helping people recover from violence on both sides, I mean survivors and perpetrators, mm-hmm. you know, restorative justice models where people have a real confrontation and really make amends and engage and do the work Mm. of healing the community. Yeah. Instead of just going away to a penalty box and coming back. Right. That works a lot better. Are there successful models of that working on a large scale that are funded by the state? We, there's not nearly enough funding. I mean, basically so much money is going towards policing and corrections. And as you say, even if it's not for profit, you know, there are whole towns whose livelihoods yeah. depend on there being a prison in that town. And that's really hard because you don't want to kick whole towns out of work. Right. Um, but if you were to replace things with, you know, restorative models led by the communities we're working in. So let me give you a good example. Violence interruption. Super cool. When people talk about police, like why we need police, they often talk about like, well, what are you going to do if there's like a murderer on the loose? Realistically, police don't stop murders. They show up after the fact and try to solve them. But violence interruption is a model where Members of the community who are themselves system impacted, who have been in the life, who like understand their community much more deeply than any police officer is ever going to, mm-hmm. are trained to identify folks who might cause harm. Folks who might be like, it happens a lot in the gun violence context. They know who the likely shooters would be. Mm-hmm. And they are trained to intervene before a violent incident happens. And they are dramatically more effective at increasing public safety than policing is. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean. There's like, there's unfamiliar, underfunded things that are really good and get great results. Even from a research perspective, I don't see as much research um, on larger scales that show or go into the ways that we can be more effective and efficient with, with the resources we have to support rehabilitation. Um, so I, I hear you on that one. It's also, it's kind of not like, there's a ton of, there is actually a ton of research on it. It does not, it gets ignored a lot by system actors and by decision makers, but it's also, it's like so deeply ingrained in every detail, like the phone call thing, right? One of the most rehabilitative things you can do for people is keep them in, in contact with their community, even if they're locked up. So giving people access to education, phone calls, family contact visits, like that's all really rehabilitative. It helps people do better. So why do we put prisons really far away and make the phone calls so expensive that no one can afford them? And so, never pay people for their work. <laughs> oh my, so my dad, so uh, he was just released. He's been in and out of jail most of uh, my life. He's an alcoholic and he's in recovery. And they were all, all of them were DUI offenses. Mm-hmm. And every time he'd go to jail, I don't think people really understand that when you take a father out of a home, you're taking away resources and, you know, money, wage earning potential from families. So it's a way to, to increase poverty on a, on a large scale and it, you know, affects the whole household. So from that perspective, I, I know that, that personal experience, but then when he went to jail, the calls, even as an adult and I'm working, I have a decent job. I'm like, $30 for a call. Yeah. And there's times when he, we couldn't talk for two, three weeks because of some rule and, and yeah. even with his medical history, it, I couldn't get responses. 
And to me, I'm thinking this is the most backwards way of handling it. Even um, forget the fact that he's in jail. How can he even support or sustain uh, anything else outside his life prior when he's not able to have even email access or internet um, and proper phone time with people that he needs to have contact with? I understand that what you're saying from that point. And I think what's so important is that we be listening more to folks like you, right? Mm -hmm. So often like journalists and, you know, TV shows and our sort of national conversation is so focused on law enforcement voices and so focused on system voices that they're not hearing the family saying, it makes no sense to take my dad away. The family saying, it makes no sense to separate us like this. Also like, Or let the man have free phone calls to his daughters, at least. Yeah. It's good for for you. It's good for him. I mean, also just thinking about the employability question, the the fact that we let criminal records not, you know, prevent people from getting jobs, prevent them from moving forward, prevent them from living in certain forms of housing, prevent them from accessing resources. I mean, it's not just harmful to the family in the moment. deeply harmful in the moment, but for the whole future of that family, mm-hmm. their economic mobility has been tied down mm-hmm. by this, this system that makes no sense. Right. So yeah, we need to do more listening to you uh. <laughs> and less like listening to, I don't know, those horrible cops shows and and I want to do more listening to you because you're um, through these conversations. This was what it gives me passion to want to pursue conversations. And this is how I found you was when I'm researching my dad's case. And there has to be groups out here that understand what families are going through and who can I talk to? Who can I trust uh, if I'm, you know, emailing the state and the Department of Corrections or the parole board and no one's responding it's it's almost a very hopeless feeling as a daughter. And that was what, what spurred my interest in wanting to just understand more of the the other key players that you mentioned to try and, and a, get understanding for myself and then B, spread awareness to others. It's so important. It's really like, this is how, the way we change things is by making people care and making them vote based on those issues. Yes. And I mean, really, I personally don't believe in human caging at all, but I think that even as an interim step, like what if we made everybody's goal to get people home instead of mm-hmm. keeping them? Think about the way parole boards work. They don't send anybody home. No. They go up for parole and then they can't go up again for many years. They mm-hmm. get denied every time. I mean, if the whole, if people were rewarded and promoted based on how fast they could get people out. Uh, like, uh, right. Then it would be a different system. Yeah. So, Tell me about what we can do as a public, right? And ways to engage. You mentioned, oh, you know, getting people to care and then getting them to vote. Uh, What are the ways that we can support the work that you do as a public defender? And what should we be aware of um, in our local communities? Oh, that's a great question. Well, okay. So I'm going to plug (laughs) partnersforjustice.org. You can always support our work. We're actually operating in three states, soon to be four. What are those three Uh, states? We're in Delaware, California, Texas, and we're opening two offices in Louisiana this fall. Okay, nice. So it's like, if you want to send an actual human being into the field to protect actual human beings who are being negatively impacted by the system and ensure that they get wraparound services as opposed to just haphazard services, that's what we do. But beyond that, like, I mean, donations are great, don't get me wrong, but beyond (laughs) that... um, I think if people started paying a lot more attention to their local elections, we would see a really big change. So for example, DA races are everything. Having okay. a person in that office who's going to decide, you know, not to prosecute drug, anything, anything that arises from poverty, substance use disorder, behavioral health problems, like we're just not making that crime. Mm-hmm. The DA has the power to do that. They have the power to step back from lengthy sentences. They have the power to give people opportunities. They have a ton of power. And like nobody pays attention most of the time to who their DA is or what they're doing. But like, you know, look at Chase Abudin in San Francisco. He has the power to do oh, amazing things. If I could vote for him, <laughs> I love him. Yeah. And he's a former public defender. Like I think we're seeing more and more in, in races across the country, people from a civil rights or public defense background saying, yeah. give me a shot. Give me a shot at being the prosecutor of this region and we'll see what happens. I can do this a little bit better. <laughs> It's true. A lot better. The the race in LA right now is a really big one. Uh, Jackie Lacey and George Gascon, that's one to watch. There's races all, I mean, basically, if I were talking to viewers, the number one thing is look at your local races, your DAs, 
-hmm. even your attorney generals in certain states and systems, states attorneys. I think also just like asking these questions of all sorts of elected officials. We should be seeing these questions routinely in governor's races, in mayor's races, in, you know, state senate, you know, federal races across the board. Like the more we ask these questions, the more we can communicate to politicians that ordinary people actually care about this stuff. Right. And what are those questions that we can ask, right? Because if I'm reaching out to uh, executives of states and officials, what do I ask and what is isn't within my right? What can I hold them responsible for? And specifically, let's talk about the positions of the district attorney and then maybe even attorney general, just those yeah. two positions. So, I mean, pretty much all questions should start with like, what is your plan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is your plan for? Um, <laughs> what is your plan for, you know, decriminalizing things that are caused by, like I said, poverty, youth, behavioral health conditions, substance use disorder. Like, how are you going to get all of those people out of the criminal system? Mm-hmm. Um, what is your plan for transparency? Like, we want to know the statistics. Who Who's being arrested? Who's being charged? What's mm-hmm. the racial breakdown there? Like, we want radical transparency. And by that, you mean data and analytics, data. correct? Yeah, we want data. And we also want to know more about, you know, what policies they're going to have internally in their office to say, like I said, promote people for coming up with restorative or transformative solutions instead of jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, force people to pick the lowest possible sentence of a sentencing range and not do the charge stacking thing that gives prosecutors so much power to force people, even innocent people, into pleading guilty by using, you know, these mm-hmm. very lengthy sentences they can hang over people's heads. DAs can choose not to do that. Yeah. Um, embracing and really funding alternatives, you know, programs that are restorative that are, um, that are, you know, especially like alternatives that are not law enforcement run, <laughs> you know, community, yes. how are you going to engage with your community and lift up community groups that are already trying to do this work? So that's a question I want to ask you really quick. When you're talking about engaging community and you have to do that with Partners for Justice, right? What is your tact? How do you do this as a, as a nonprofit? And then do, what's the feedback from the community? So anytime we go into a new space, we try to, like our whole job is to make sure that the public defender is really well networked in existing community resources. So look at it this way. Inside a great holistic defense office, you're going to have, you know, housing law, you're going to have family defense, you're going to have immigration, you're going to have all this stuff. But when you go to a sort of traditional public defender, they got criminal defense in-house, maybe immigration. So part of our job is to find the providers who are already doing substance use work, emergency shelter, benefits, um, civil rights, uh, employment law, Mm -hmm. and get them excited to work with us and to set up referral networks that for the client feel really seamless. They don't feel like they're working with six agencies. They feel like they've got one advocate who's standing by their side. Mm -hmm. So that means that when we go to a new place, we've got to meet everybody. We've got to have sit downs where we explain who we are, what we do. Oftentimes, it's really important to remind people that when we hand off a case, say, to an outside agency of some kind, we're not just dropping a client in your lap and, like, piecing out. Bye. Yeah, totally. (laughs) We're offering our help. We're saying, you know, if you want to take this case, we'll collaborate. We will get you the documents you need. We'll help the client, you know, go to the meetings they got to go to. We will will do all of this effort to ensure that it's easy for you to partner with us and participate. And by that way, we, we get the public defender more integrated mm-hmm. into what the sort of ecosystem of poverty is already doing mm-hmm. in that region. And I imagine this is very beneficial for the public defenders as well, right? This helps them get a larger view um, and so only would strengthen their skill set and ability to do their job better. Exactly. So it gives them the ability to say yes to all sorts of stuff that they would not otherwise have expertise to do in-house. They can say when their client is like, hey, I think, you know, I think my boss is stealing my wages. Like I'm not getting my tips. They can be Mm -hmm. like, you know what? I know someone I can call for that. Right. That's a big deal. But also when everybody is in communication and collaborating, everybody's a lot more aware of the patterns they're seeing. Like what is plaguing this community? Is this community where you're seeing, we had one community where we were seeing a pattern of like dog bite, like police dog bites, police dogs biting people. Mm -hmm. Like. You don't find that out unless you've got the people who, you know, are dealing with that civil rights issue, talking to the people who may be experiencing arrest. Like you get a more community rooted environment in the public defender's office because they are hearing more of what's actually happening to the community. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, and and I could see where you're able to connect dots that you normally 
might otherwise be overlooked when you're looking at data from different groups all the time and that are also so siloed or separated. So what are the biggest obstacles that you run into? What are the biggest things that prevent you guys from being able to do your work effectively, but also stopping movement and, and forward action in the immediate? So Partners for Justice is a little bit lucky because the work we do is so obviously helpful. Like mm-hmm. nobody's going to fight with nobody's going to say you're doing a shitty job. <laughs> yeah, but like also no, but also like nobody's going to be like it is not useful to get people access to mental health support. Like right. nobody's going to say that. But do you get pushback because you you do support you know inmates and do you do get pushback from that? No, no. In fact, even judges and prosecutors have like really really loved our program because. We provide so much information mm-hmm. about the actual person that we're working with, um, you know, by which I mean, we amplify that person's story and their right. voice and we humanize them. And we Once all- you're able to humanize them, then the public's like, oh, it's a human. If I were in the same position, I'd be doing the same thing. <laughs> exactly. And they know that if, if a person has an advocate on their side, they're more likely to complete whatever program they sign up for or more likely to do whatever they say they're going to do if they engage in some kind of deal. But mm-hmm. I would also say- we don't get the same kind of pushback uh, that other groups do who are working on sort of more hot button issues. But one really big challenge I would say is under-resourcing in the communities we serve. You know, in some regions, it can be really hard to find a certain type of provider. Like if there is no immigration provider in a region, we're going two cities over to try to get our clients access to resources they desperately need. That could be a really big problem. Do you get trust is a problem from the community, like the people? We work really hard to engage in a power dynamic where our client really is our boss, right? Mm. That, that really helps build trust when you're not coming into the room saying, I know what's good for you and I'm going to tell you what to do. Yeah, because I know better. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So building trust has actually been something we haven't struggled with. I would say that putting young people and our, our, our group, our advocates are largely recently out of college. Many, it's majority minority group. Many are first-generation college students or first-generation Americans. And we're putting them in really difficult spaces, you know, like in inside carceral environments and inside spaces where people who look like them are being harmed Mm. by the system. Yeah. And supporting our team as they have to just deal with the emotional weight of that, it's a really big burden Mm. to carry at the age of 23. Um, How do you guys do it? We're still, we're still figuring it out. I mean, we, we are right now we're working with our team to have them lead us on what, like what they want to have in terms of support. And we're trying to put all of that in place. We're high touch. Like every team member has their peer cohort around them and a supervisor in their office. And they're meeting with someone on our national team, me or my partner or our third um, national team member, Vichal Kumar for extra support regularly. We're doing national team calls where everybody who's in the whole organization comes together and shares their stories and issues. We're troubleshooting as we go. But like, if I had a perfect world, like I would have like a therapist on call anytime an advocate like just needs to talk to somebody. Um, that, That would be great. I think the best thing we can do is help them actually dismantle the harms that they are witnessing, empowering them, to fight back is, mm-hmm. is really important. What is the craziest thing that you've seen in your work as a public defender? And give me an example of what you mean when you talk about the weight that public defenders carry. Oh man. To be fair, like, I just want to like acknowledge I had a, a lot easier of a time of it than my colleagues of color, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I could waltz into the courthouse in a suit and wave right in. And I watched my black colleagues in suits have their ID checked every single time in a courthouse they'd been going to every day for five years. Uh-huh. So my experience bore a lot more privilege than my colleagues. But I think that beyond just the like daily emotional burden of like really caring deeply about protecting a person who it's like, you're, you're kind of their gladiator. It's like your job to protect this person from harm and being powerless when you fail. Like I could give the most beautiful bail application in the world for someone who's, who I absolutely believe no real human (laughs) would would put in a cage and, and have that person physically taken away from me by guards and knowing they're getting sent to Rikers Island. And that it's not nearly as hard on me as it is on the person on Rikers Island, but still just like, like, 
taking on the response, saying, I will help you Mm -hmm. really hard when you fail. Yeah. Um, And then, and then when you fail in that situation, it feels, I'm sure like a failure from your sense as a worker, right? Here you're trying to work to help someone else. It fails and then still show up the next time and give it everything you've got with the same conviction. I imagine that has to be hard. Yeah. I I mean, also just because sometimes it, it's like, it's not hard. It's not like I'm talking about, like, I worked really, really hard to get this ax murderer out. Like, it's not, it's it's like, you know, a young father who missed a couple of appointments because he had just had a new baby. And like, we know what that's like. It's like, you're not sleeping. It's like, you're trying so hard to keep milk in the fridge. Yeah. And have being an entire room full of people who don't understand why you think this young man should be given another chance to make those appointments. Like, Mm -hmm. Where you kind of walk in the room and like, how can anybody disagree with me on this? And then right. having people not listen or shut down, it's really, that sucks. And that it's a symptom of how bad our system is. Mm-hmm. Um, that and also the regularity with which I would have actual innocence cases come through my... Was it more innocence than not? I mean, I, there are a lot of cases where you don't know. And honestly, it doesn't matter because uh-huh. like, <laughs> I think the whole system's wrong no matter what you did. But um, uh-huh. when you say the whole system's wrong, mm-hmm. what is the whole system? Well, I mean, responding to like what we were talking about before, I think that responding to transgression with violence and isolation and trauma is like not effective. And right. I, okay. But so I don't think it, when I, I, I hate, I hate it when we like amplify innocence cases yeah. as being like the only meritorious things that don't deserve this and everybody else totally deserves this. Right. That's not what I mean, but I did, I, I was shocked because some naive part of me thought, you know, that police are out there like Olivia Benson on law and order SVU, like diligently investigating every case and sending the innocent people home. Right. And then I'd, I'd be in court and I'd get like a case of a person whose alibi was like, literally they were in another state and they have their pay stubs from their job in the other state. And they're like, plane ticket that they took to get back here and they still get sent to Rikers yeah. because of the terribly shoddy investigation that mm-hmm. is credited over their own word. I mean, that yeah. watching like how bad the system is at determining truth is scary. It's really bad. Anybody, anybody, if you're listening to this and you're out there, you are totally at risk of getting wrongfully arrested. So really it's it's the DA and the attorney generals and making sure we're getting those right people in to present the right leadership and tone. For sheriffs too. Sheriffs. sheriffs. Yeah, like chiefs of police are usually not elected, but sheriffs usually are. Mm-hmm. And so people have the power to control who their sheriff is. I mean, look at Joe, what Joe Arpaio did in Arizona. That's the power of yeah. a sheriff. Is that a good first step is to target those three positions? Like, hey, let's just make sure that we have good leadership in these three positions. From a district attorney perspective, do you have any district attorneys that you really admire? <laughs> um, with Chesa. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. I, like, I used to kind of think about like, what, w- what would I do if I was the DA? But like, honestly, I just have like this ethical block against ever putting people in cages. So I think that um, we're still kind of waiting to see the full effect of the progressive prosecutor movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly it's spreading across the country and a lot of the worst actors are being weeded out, but we're still waiting to see if it goes far enough. You know, you, one does hear about supposedly progressive prosecutors still locking people up for substance use problems. I know. I know. It drives me nuts. It really drives me nuts. It's the low hanging fruit, right? Like don't Mm -hmm. lock people up for addiction. It's pretty low, pretty low bar. And uh, you know, in one of your other, uh, a post on social media, maybe it was an article that you wrote. I don't remember the specifics, but you talked about checking police activity when, you know, if you had a stupid case come through and you would always check the the timestamp to see if it was at the end of their shift. Yeah. Uh, can you explain why? I think that we were, that was about defunding the police conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I was talking, I was walking down the roads, socially distanced outdoors, talking to my mom on the phone and sort of like, complaining about this. And she's like, I mean, you've got to tell people nobody knows. I was like, oh, everybody knows about this overtime problem. And she was like, no, 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 no. No, they um, know. And that's kind of one of the things about listening to public defenders is we don't even realize how much insider stuff <laughs> we yeah. carry around. But in truth, okay, so police are one of the only types of employee who is both salaried and eligible for overtime. Like, 
I'm salaried. doesn't matter how many hours I work. I'm not going to get overtime pay. But a police officer who works past the hours of their shift will get overtime. If you just Google like police overtime abuse, <laughs> you will see cases from California to Massachusetts to New York to like everywhere. Yeah. Where police are making really substantial sums of money. And that's not because their salary is high. It's because they get a ton of overtime pay. Oftentimes the highest paid public employees in a jurisdiction will be police who are doing a lot of overtime. So what I meant by that was if I would get like a really dumb arrest, like, like there's just no reason why this, like, you know, a person arrested for a drug sale who has no drugs, no cash, no cell phones, no baggies, no scales, no stuff. Yeah. Or like, you know, a kid arrested in public housing whose ID says he lives in that public house, you know, just like, why would this arrest happen? Well, you'd look at the, the shift. Let's say an officer's shift ends at six. Mm-hmm. If they make an arrest at 5.30, well, they get to sit in their precinct, filling out all the paperwork for that arrest. And that takes a while. Yeah. Um, they get to take that, you know, person has to be processed, their property taken, their photograph taken, their demographic details taken. They get taken to central booking. That officer usually has to communicate with a prosecutor, write up, you know, the version of the case, go through the facts with the prosecutor, yeah. sign off on that criminal complaint. And all of that can take many, many, many hours. And it's also like really easy, low risk work. You're not like out in the field, you know, right. doing policey stuff. You're sitting at a desk filling out paperwork and making a ton of money. Mm-hmm. So it's a really commonly used trick. And officers will actually sometimes shift who the arresting officer is on a case in order to give their colleagues access to more overtime or or give people, you know, the boost they need in their stats. But the mm-hmm. overtime abuse thing is real. It's widespread. It's not like the financial problem is a really big problem. We don't, we, the taxpayers don't want to be paying insane sums of money for bad arrests, but the innocence problem is also a problem, right? When you have made up arrests that are happening because someone wants to stay on the job longer, Mm -hmm. every arrest is possibly life destroying. Like every Mm -hmm. arrest could cost you your job, your schooling, your home, your family, like your pet. Yeah. It's not no big deal. Mm -mm. So it's good to be aware of that because from my, I didn't even know, I didn't know that it was commonly known. And when we're talking about defunding police and wherever everybody stands on, it's not even against the the good police officers who are not doing that. This is just strictly a bad practice within the field that does happen commonly enough to where, like you said, it's it's known within in, you they know your life. Collars for dollars in New York. Collars for dollars. <laughs> wow. Well, and and it's that would be easy low hanging fruit to cut in terms of budget, right? Yeah. You we're looking at budgets of, of different cities. Hey, for sure, let's tackle our overtime budget. Really should not be happening if we have other officers on shift that day as well. Yeah. Yeah. And also, when you think about the payouts that cities and counties pay for police abuse, so you've got an officer who does something horrifying and does, you know, it is, is actually requires the city to settle a case because they've done something very violent. They are held liable. They personally suffer no harm. They're not going to lose their job or if they do, they can just go to the next city or county and get hired. They call that being a gypsy cop. Um, they're not going to have to pay out of their own pension or you know, out of their own. The police department often doesn't even pay the settlement out of their own funds. It comes from other city funds. Mm. So like, there's, it's not even like there's individually no disincentive to do harm. There's like departmentally no disincentive to make people stop doing harm. Where's the level of accountability start, though, within the police? Is it the is it the public? Is that the 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 real way to be able to provide that accountability? Is that the only real way? Is through the public? <laughs> it, it's really hard, right? Because, I mean, unless you end practices like qualified immunity that protect mm-hmm. officers from being held liable, unless you end practices like you know, like the lack of transparency we see on police misconduct, like make those records public, make the public aware of who the bad actors are. Mm-hmm. Unless you end the ability for bad actors to just get hired and rehired and rehired. Like yeah. if I committed malpractice and I lost my license to practice law, I wouldn't just go a town over. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't go to the next, can't go to the next state and then just start up again. Right. Um, so I think all of those are areas for accountability. One, one thing people can really do is keep an eye on the public budgets for this stuff. You know, really dig into what the police are spending money on and go to your city council, go to your county, you know, commissioners, go to that public safety committee meeting and say, I don't want my money being spent on this. Mm-hmm. If they don't hear from people that care, they right. don't understand that the public's paying attention. Yes. 
I think that's key. And this is a great thing about social media right now. And the fact that we can translate and transmit this information so readily and available. And we have sources that we can connect with (laughs) via Zoom. (laughs) This is a great thing. Um, I want to switch gears really quick. So one question, what is attending Harvard and Stanford like? (laughs) Well, let's see. So I went when I was really young to college. I was 16. I think I was just trying really hard to get out of Iowa. (laughs) Bless Iowa. It is lovely. Uh, My parents had gotten a divorce. I was like really unhappy. Um, You're like, I need the heck out of here. Right. So first of all, I I will be forever grateful for the education I got. I mean, the actual quality of education, the things I was able to read, the people I was able to study with, like they were phenomenal. And I love Stanford Law School to the bottom of my heart. Uh (laughs) That that was a truly great experience. Like in a world where many law schools were at the time, like very aggressive in their sort of like stand and deliver style. Like Stanford, my, my husband refers to Stanford as my kumbaya law school experience because all of my classmates were like so supportive oh, great. of each other. It was a small <laughs> school. I still have relationships with the professors I studied with. Like that was truly the dream school. Um, at the time I was an undergrad, I was such a kid. So I, I'm not sure I'm a good person to ask. I think that I, I'm really interested in the work that Harvard has done recently to make sure they're admitting a dramatically more diverse cohort and make the school more accessible to low-income mm-hmm. students. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot schools can be doing to support low-income students better. I distinctly yeah. remember, you know, like the dorms closing at winter break and friends of mine who had nowhere to go home to. Yes. Anything because stay there. At the time I was there, there was a lot of very strange class dynamics of like, you know, the work study program involving cleaning the dorms of the others. It's just like Harvard had a lot of work to do. And I think they're doing that work in terms of becoming a better place for marginalized people. And I, mm. the reason I bring this up and now they're never going to want me to come back and talk there because I'm- Oh, they will. <laughs> hey, Solange was there but for the arts <laughs> program, but- <laughs> <laughs> the reason I bring it up is because to me, the single most important thing we can do, like as a society to make better choices is to bring more voices into the conversation and to be yes. listening to the people who are impacted by the systems we're talking about. Not to me, like Harvard should let in fewer of me and more folks who grew up, you know, in hyper-policed neighborhoods accused of gang membership, you know, with their dad in jail. Like those so- are the voices we need to promote. So how, okay, so this was the second question I wanted to ask you, because when I went to, to do research on you, you have a Wikipedia? I do. Your, no, no, I'm sorry, you don't have, but your, your uncle does, your mom does, your dad does, <laughs> your grandma and your grandpa. I'm like, holy cow. Yeah, um, my family's all artists. I'm the, I'm the black sheep. <laughs> my, my parents are both poets and my grandmother uh, was a sculptor. My grandfather was a journalist. So they all had and have like these amazing, creative, very public careers. And I'm like off quietly in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> Doing people out of jail. <laughs> still being an artist and creative in your own line of work. It's it does, amazing. It's, it's all about storytelling. It really Truly. is. Truly. Your parents have this long legacy there. And when I'm reading and, and gr- your grandparents, big people in the world take up a lot of space. Is that hard as a child or did it help you to oh, come up and rise? Oh. And then, <laughs> and then with that, how did then are you so compassionate and empathetic towards others who had very different upbringings? Where does that compassion and that passion for your work come from? So first of all, I mean, growing up in a family of artists is a weird kind of privilege, right? Because it's people who are big people with big ideas, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing miserably. Like life can be very inconstant in terms of like, we're doing really well. Oh my God, nobody sold us. <laughs> like it's, you know, yeah. it's a, um, but it also resulted in a world where my mom is the sort of person who makes you believe anything is possible. I've never seen her set her mind to something and not make it a reality, uh-huh. which is part of the poet, like creation yeah. of Reality. Creator. Yeah. yeah exactly. So you have the vision and be able to execute it. Right. And, and to grow up with a mom, even as a tiny child to think like my mom can make anything happen yeah. um, because she'll invent it or she'll, she'll, she'll make it up. I mean, yeah. you know, crazy birthday parties where we'd all go to Goodwill and get prom dresses and wear witches hats and then go dance on a riverboat casino. Like, yeah, <laughs> I love that. 
And my dad, you know, um, made sure that I spent a lot of time on a working ranch um, in Wyoming, well, right on the Wyoming Colorado border. Um, so I had a life that involved, you know, visiting my grandmother in Italy and being part of that world and being, you know, in public school in Iowa and then going out and like, I, I used to be able to rope a cow. I'm pretty sure I still could. I roped a DA once. Um, I, I read that you do urban roping now. Right, like you know, hard, hard. You found hard your work. roping. But that meant that I was around all kinds of folks. Like, yeah. I myself got into a lot of trouble. You know, my parents broke up. I was super unhappy. I got into a lot of trouble as a kid. I made some really bad choices. So, you know, um, I'm not in any position. I guess, I guess having varied and sometimes problematic life experience makes you really able to connect with folks who are going through varied and sometimes. I love that though. Yeah. It means you had, you had courage to act when, what I guess act and, and be, be is probably the better word. Um, which allows you to understand people who also act and be in this world in ways that might be different from what society wants us to be at all of those different stages. I love this. I've always liked helping, even though, you know, I just, I I, I think that my attitude towards this work is very much about being someone's helper. Mm -hmm. A public servant. Yeah. And not even public servant, but helper. I love that word. It's a, a great thing to have people like you in the world who are truly working their butt off to help other people with passion and conviction. And you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to. Yeah, I think something internally makes me have to. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, like to pay the bills, right? Uh, there, there could be other work that you do, but because this is your calling and this is what you are um, so passionate about, this is where we get the the benefit as a, as a public. That's the thing about being a public defender. Public defenders are definitely not doing it for the money. <laughs> we should pay them more. <laughs> we should. We should. Yeah. That should also be something of, of conversation. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, Emily, thank you for your time. I appreciate you coming and, and providing your information with us. Uh, where can people find you? What is the website for? Uh, it's www.partnersforjustice.org. Got it. All right. And I will link those to the online website as well. Again, thank you. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Happy to have you on anytime in the future. Thank you so much, Andre. This has been great. Thank you for listening to Tuesdays with Andrea. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I appreciate you making the time to listen to mine. If you like this show and want to know more, check out TuesdaysWithAndrea.com or please leave a review on iTunes or drop a line in the YouTube comment section. Until next time, please stay kind in your mind, nice on the web, and stay hella hopeful in your heart.